Well, good afternoon, everyone. Hello, hello. Good afternoon. Thank you. You can hear me okay? Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you all for joining us. This is a three o'clock. This is a pretty good turnout. So thank you very much for coming to join us for this really special session of Nursing Grand Rounds. Uh, I want to welcome folks who are joining us from their home computers. Uh, just to remind everyone, we're also being recorded. Uh, today's presentation is an important one and one that we're offering in part because nurses who practice at the point of care made direct, direct requests for this content based on the increasing numbers of transgendered patients they're caring for in their practice and the gap in knowledge and practice that they have identified. The title of today's presentation is Working with Transgender Patients, How Can We Improve Their Healthcare Experiences? The learning outcomes for this activity are as follows. At the conclusion of this presentation, learners will have enhanced their understanding of the care of transgender patients and will feel more comfortable meeting their health care needs, have a better understanding of when gender identity does and does not play a role during a, a provider-patient interaction, and will be better able to discuss gender-related issues with patients when it is appropriate and necessary. Before we begin, I do have several brief announcements. After the program, you will receive an email from the Center for Learning and Professional Development with a link to an online evaluation. Within two weeks' time, your credit will be posted to your online transcript. We do value your feedback regarding this and all of our programs and invite you to take just a few moments to complete our evaluation. If you're here in the room, please be sure that you've signed in in order to receive your credit, and you must be here for at least 80% 80, 80 of the program to receive credit. For folks who are viewing online, if you have any questions during the presentation, um, Judy Langhans will be monitoring her email. Just uh, send her an email, and she'll share your questions with uh, the panel or uh, one of our speakers. Uh, her email address is judith.m, as in Mary, Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org. Uh, also, again, for folks viewing online, please uh, email Judy following the presentation, letting her know that you attended. She'll need your name, degree, and zip code. Uh, in order to uh, access your online transcripts, we have information here by the sign-in sheet, or for folks viewing online, just contact Judy, and she'll give you directions for that. Neither are speakers nor anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. So at this time, I'm going to introduce uh, your first speaker, Dr. Jack Turco, who has worked diligently putting this presentation together right up until, I'm going to say, five or ten minutes ago. <laughs> I actually started five or ten minutes ago. No. <laughs> So Dr. Turco, for those of you who don't know him, is an endocrinologist here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. He's professor of medicine at the Geisel School of Medicine. He will be introducing the rest of our faculty, and he's actually the husband of a pretty good friend of mine. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, thank you. This is a great opportunity for us to talk a little bit about our virtual transgender clinic at DH. Uh, ben, Bo, and I are self-proclaimed co-directors of the uh, clinic. Uh, but we're going to try to formalize this clinic much more in the next uh, six months and even have a web page where we can really um, make sure that people, patients and also doctors, have resources. Now, I'm supposed to get through this in about 10 minutes. None of the people that have done talks with me in the past think I can do this, so I'm going to show. I want to start with one personal disclosure. 
I've been seeing transgender patients about 25 plus years, the same time that Gail Isham sitting right here is seeing patients because she saw the first patient with me 25 plus years ago, uh, treating patients. And I've developed a strong bias that the underlying etiology of being transgendered is largely a hardwired phenomenon. I also believe that transfolk gender dysphoria, which I'll define in a sec, is an off, often powerfully negative and disruptive but potentially motivating consequence of trying to understand, adapt to, and then hopefully take actions to transition their gender to live in a more happy and productive life, while at the same time deal with an often transphobic, non-supportive mainstream uh, society. So having said that, what is dysphoria? And it's defined by a state of unease or generalized dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction with life. Gender dysphoria is a dysphoria that accumulates as a result of being transgendered. Psychological issues don't cause someone to be trans, transgendered. I think that's very hardwired. But dysphoria can come about trying to live in our society as a transgendered uh, individual. I love this statement I, uh, from one of my patients said, Doc, I'm not trans uh, dysphoric. Society is dysphoric towards me. And I think that's a lot of the problem that hopefully sessions like this will help to start to reverse. And I, you know, I'm going to write a letter to Life magazine to uh, make Caitlyn Jenner the woman of the year, because I think it was a very heroic thing that was done, and it was done in a, in a good way. Another, another uh, quote I love is, Doc, I chose to start hormones. I chose to start hormones, but I didn't choose to be transgendered. And I hear that in one way or the other from a lot of patients. So what's the idealized progression taken by transgender patients? Uh, often feelings of uh, gender nonconformity. Something just doesn't fit. And it can start at uh, three, four, five, six, seven, or it can be later on. Uh, experimentation with cross-dressing, living in, in the preferred gender, uh, initiate hormones, and undergo sex reassignment surgery. Now, I think an important thing to remember, in reality, all transgender patients have a unique path. Some patients stop at points along the spectrum and feel very comfortable or have very tangible and important reasons for not going further. You know, I, I'm taking hormones, I feel good, but if I go and start to have surgery, I'm gonna lose my family. Uh, my parents won't talk to me, my kids won't talk to me. Or some people just say, this is right for me and I'm stopping here. Others skip intermediate steps. Ben and I are seeing individuals that may have had uh, breast reduction surgery, trans males who have trust breast reduction surgery before they go on hormones. So. You gotta remember, everybody, everybody is different. And some patients, I should say importantly, often suppress their uh, trans feelings for years and years and years, which can lead to more and more dysphoria. So how do you identify somebody uh, who's transgendered? Uh, a patient, many patients may inform and tell you that they're transgendered, especially if they're feeling welcome in your practice. And we're gonna talk a lot about having a trans-friendly practice. Uh, also, as medical providers, be aware of potential hints you may get from the name and gender in the medical record. You know, a lot of times patients are able to change their name, but don't think they can change their gender. So you might see Alice that in, in is a male. That's just a tip off for you to be aware of that. Um, and having well-formulated intake forms uh, that are GLBT friendly can help. I'd like to say DHMC is like that, I'm afraid we're not, but that's one thing that I think we'd love to do is to have it more easily for somebody to, to pick a gender that, you know, that fits. I mean, we've all been since kindergarten been checking a box, sex, 
male, female. I have no idea what that means. Who I'm having sex with, what do I look like for a sex, who I'm attracted to. So it's meaningless. Uh, also, be aware of uh, potential name, gender, and appearance discrepancies. You know, if you see somebody in the waiting room who's obviously a woman, um, gender identity-wise, and is named Mac, or not, I shouldn't say Max, I could go, you know, Fred, you know, be sensitive to that and, you know, not yell out, Fred, are you here? Please come up and so forth. So be aware of that. But, you, you know, one thing to be aware of, you're often not going to be aware that you're seeing a transgendered patient. And that transgender patient uh, may not choose to, you know, relate that to you because they don't think it's relevant for their, the medical care they're coming in for, or they're just not sure, quite frankly, that they're safe. So they may not, be able, they may not do that. You've got to be aware of that. Now, medical appointments are often very stressful for trans patients. They can run an array of emotions like anxiety, fear, depression, elation, mistrust, apprehension, anger. I worked hard on this slide. You see how they, <laughs> etc. Now, these emotions are no different from other cisgender patients. However, these emotions are often enhanced in trans patients due to the gender dysphoria caused by previous negative experiences medical providers. I suspect you may hear about a few of those. Uh, or they may stories uh, of experiences heard from other transgender patients, uh, or it may just be the phase of transition that they're going through that makes them very anxious about going out in public and, and so forth. Uh, and we should remember, there's no doubt that trans patients remain a stigmatized population of medical patients. I think, I think hopefully it's getting a little bit better, but certainly we're not there as of yet. Now, there are uh, studies to show uh, that many, pa uh, many pa trans patients put off routine medical visits and also avoid getting acute medical care just because they want to avoid a physician's office. And that's why that's a real challenge for us to, to make them feel as if that that's a place that they are going to be respected and given good medical care. So what do you do if you suspect a patient is transgendered? Uh, first of all, I think ask the patient the name that they prefer to be called. Actually, I think this is probably not a bad practice for all patients that we see. I like to call patients by their first name, and I often will go in and say, what, you know, what name would you like me to refer you to? But certainly if you're getting some question, this is a question you want to ask. And, you know, many times, oh, I meant to, I meant to turn this off. You know, some patients, this is the joke, and they do this on purpose, so it wasn't mine. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so let's get back here. Uh, what, what name do you, do you go by? Uh, and many patients have said to me, they'll hesitate for a second, say, you know, this is the first time I've gone by this name. You know, and that's, you know, something that if they trust you to do that, that's, that's really pretty cool. Now, if the name or the appearance suggests that a patient is a trans male or a trans female, a trans male is a biological female whose gender identity is male, so it's a trans male, and conversely, the opposite is for trans female. Uh, the next question you should ask is, what pronouns do you want me to use? And pronouns are an important issue, okay? And you're not going to get it perfect. So my only word of advice, if you screw them up, which I guarantee you will, apologize once. But don't apologize 15 times during that conversation because it'll get you so flustered and get the, the person uh, upset. But anyways, get the pronouns right. Uh, now, if you feel that the gender identity uh, status of the patient in addition to sex reassignment surgery that may have taken place, if you think that that's relevant for the medical visit you're uh, seeing the patient for, then you should ask some very direct questions.
questions after explaining the reasons why. You know, if you're going into a patient's room and you have some reason to believe perhaps the patient's transgendered and you're going to put a, a catheter in, a urinary catheter, obviously you need to know what the plumbing is down there. Uh, and so it's very appropriate at that point to ask the patient, you know, this is the reason why I need to know if you had any surgery. Again, that's something you could ask almost any patient, but, you know, especially if somebody who is transgendered. And the questions could be, are you uh, taking cross-gender hormones? The hormones may be relevant to the problem you're seeing them for. Have you had any gender-related surgeries? Uh, when was the last pelvic or breast exam? Uh, for many, if not most, medical visits, and this is a controversial statement, but many or most, gender identity is really not an important factor. And I challenge you in the next week or two to say to yourself as you're going in to see a patient, from what I'm seeing this patient for, is that patient's gender identity that big an issue? Is it going to change what I do? We'd like to think we know everything about our patients and they tell us everything. Come on. I mean, if, if they're having, you know, sexual assault at home or, you know, they're in the process of divorce, they aren't going to necessarily tell us all of that. So that's not going to happen. So what do I try to accomplish in the first visit? I try to create a trans-friendly atmosphere for the patient. And I also realize the first time I see that patient, believe me, it's a tryout for me. That patient's coming in, looking around, seeing if they're safe and if they can trust the person they're seeing, and also if they know anything at all about transgender. Uh, so that's important. Demonstrate that I have the knowledge about trans. Be familiar. I think this is why I'm glad you're here, because you want to know a little bit about the vocabulary, the so-called standards of care, and so forth. So at least the patient knows that you know something. I, I was lucky. 25 years ago, when Gail and I first started see patients, they educated me. I knew nothing. I had never heard the term transgender in med school. There was nothing in the literature. So they kind of patted me on the head and said, we'll teach you. Bobby M was probably one of the first to teach me, too. Okay, then acknowledge that I realize this is important, that all personal stories and journeys of trans folk are different. And try to avoid the arrogance of saying, oh, don't worry. I've seen two or three transgender patients. I know what you're going to tell me, and I know what it's all about. Every story is different, and have the respect and uh, to listen to the story, because you'll learn a lot. Educate other members of your staff about creating trans-friendly. I'll tell you, you may have already lost the battle, by the time the patient gets in to see you, because key people, as we know, key people in our office are the people on the phone making appointments, how that interaction goes, and when they check in, uh, how the person's checking in. Are they getting respected or are they getting kind of smirks and so forth? So that's, that's critical. So, you know, it's important to have signs and to wear a pin, so forth. We're going to give you the opportunity at the end to pick up a pin. But I'm going to say to you that wearing a pin doesn't make you GLBT friendly. You have to walk the walk. So you really have to look around your office and make sure that not just you, but the whole office understands and can treat people with respect. Okay, terminology. Terminology. Doctors and medical providers don't like to be on the other side of the knowledge pool. We always feel as if we're equal, but let's, let's be realistic. We all like to think, oh, I know more than this patient. Well, terminology that you don't know can really fluster you. And so when a patient comes in and starts using terminology that you haven't heard of, uh, you know, it, it can make you uncomfortable. And that's why this glossary that Jackson Schultz had is his book, uh, uh, he'll tell you about his book that's coming out in five days. Uh, he allowed us to, to use this glossary. Uh, so that, that's very important uh, because uh, it's important also that if a patient uses a certain uh, term and you're not sure what they mean or the context, stop and say, just what do you mean by that term? 
Okay, it's not, they're going to think more of you for asking. And from what I understand, things change very quickly. And I wouldn't be surprised, I say here, the glossary we have provided will help, but it's probably already outdated for some terms and doesn't include others. Would you agree? Absolutely. Okay. We didn't plan that. That was unscripted, so I'm glad you agreed. <laughs> okay, I'm almost there. Reason trans patients see a medical provider to get hormones to initiate or support gender transitioning. Ben and I see a lot of patients for starting on hormones. Uh, some of the patients we refer to surgeons who are specialists in sex reassignment surgery, SRS. And uh, counselors also can see patients for the gender dysphoric symptoms. However, the overwhelming majority of medical uh, visits are medical symptoms and conditions totally unrelated to transitioning. So the majority of visits, uh, that's the majority of visits. The only other caveat I would say is that sometimes I'm seeing a patient and maybe I've just been too involved in seeing transgender patients, somebody who comes in who's not at that point transgendered or doesn't quite understand they're transgendered and have symptoms I, that I wonder could, could gender identity be an issue. It's kind of like the elephant in the corner of the room. So you need to be aware of that and think of a good way to possibly bring that up. What is the goal of hormones? You know, I, I would make this simple. Uh, it's really trying to reverse estrogen testosterone. In this room here, most everybody has either high testosterone and low estrogen, or conversely, high estrogen and low testosterone. And really, hormonal transitioning is just to change that ratio. Uh, in trans females, biological males, trans females, we also can use sometimes androgen blockers. These are medications that can block testosterone. Spironolactone, you've all probably heard of it as a diuretic. That's the blocker we tend to use 90% of the time. So after a discussion with the patient, then we usually will talk about how they want to take the uh, estrogen or the t testosterone, what dose. And this is where I must say, you know, having some trans medical experience uh, is helpful, you know, because uh, it doesn't take an endocrinologist to do this, but it takes somebody that has had some experience in doing and had, you know, somewhat of a learning curve. So estrogens, androgens, and even androgen blockers are not exotic, me exotic medicines and commonly prescribed in our cis patients. What's a cis What's a cis male? Can anybody uh, define that for me? I've used that term, cis male, cis female. <laughs> exactly. Uh, thank you, Barbie. Uh, right, so a cis male means uh, from that, uh, their biological sex matches their gender identity, okay? All right, we're moving right on. Uh, let me just say, I think it's going to be important in the next generation for primary care uh, providers to step up to care for uh, transgender patients. And so hopefully all of you here that may be from some primary care uh, providers offices will try to make the primary care office trans friendly, educate uh, oneself and your office about it, signage matters, reports of bad care will travel fast within the trans community, but reports of good care will travel even faster. Uh, and identify local resources. So uh, what is different about the current generation of adolescents and young adults who are transitioning? That should be a question. What is different? Well, there is a big difference. And Ben Bowles is now going to talk about uh, his kind of specialization. He sees a whole spectrum of transgender patients, but is really specializing in adolescence. And that's the real change in the last 25 years, the time that individuals are transitioning. So Ben's going to talk a little bit about that now. And let's see if we can, I'll let Judy do it. She can, can do it. gear it up. 
All right, thank you, Jack. All right, thanks for the help. I'm a little techni technically challenged, that's good. All right, so I'm really glad we're doing this talk today, um, and that's because nurses are such an important part of the team, and particularly as advocates for our transgender patients. Um, one of the most powerful patient-provider interactions that I witnessed, this was a, a long time ago, this was in medical school, was between a transgender teen and a nurse. And the transgender teen was coming in for their first hormone shot. And this was a transgender male who was taking testosterone. And this is probably, you know, getting close to, you know, 10 years ago, maybe a little less. And the patient, I think, feeling uneasy, said to the nurse, you know, this must be strange that you work in a gender clinic and that you're seeing transgender patients. And that nurse, without batting an eye, in a very matter-of-fact way, said there's nothing strange about seeing transgender patients. Uh, this is as if I'm giving hormones to any other patient who needs them. And it, to me, that was so powerful. It may not seem, you know, if someone doesn't work with transgender patients, that may not seem like much. Um, but that patient was probably internalizing a little bit of transphobia. I didn't know that terminology then, but looking back at that, I think if you're fed garbage enough, if people have been telling you negative things about who you are, you, you start to believe that maybe. Um, and that's a dangerous thing. Um, that patient, I think, walked out of that room with their held, head held a little higher. Um, and, and I think that was a really uh, something I'll never forget. So I should go back and find that nurse. Um, so moving on here, I'd just like to give a little bit of history, very brief. Um, this is Dr. Harry Benjamin. And really, I should, I should say one thing before. Really, the real pioneers in transgender medicine are the transgender patients and particularly the patients who transitioned in the 1940s, the 1950s, and 1960s. These were patients that had fairly, what I would consider, crude hormone regimens at the time and, and crude surgeries. Um, so they were really the pioneers. But there were a few physicians who were pioneers as well. And I'd like to just talk quickly about Dr. Harry Benjamin because there's an uh, expression he used that's sort of stuck with me. Um, he, was the, he's an he was an endocrinologist. He's since deceased. He saw one of the first transgender patients in this country in 1948. That was a transgender, what I would now call a transgender girl. Uh, it was a transgender woman who was 17 or so, 16 or 17, brought in by her mom um, and presented with gender dysphoria. A very sort of dramatic case of gender dysphoria for that, for 1948. And at that time, you have to see his cohorts, they were using conversion therapy, and even worse than that, aversion therapy. So this is, you know, think as barbaric as you can. This is sort of shock therapy. You know, if that patient is thinking of wearing female clothing or female activities that they enjoy, you know, they'd be giving them, in a worst-case scenario, uh, electroshock therapy. So you got to have that context for what was happening. Um, and he saw that th this was not working. These patients were not responding to conversion therapy. There was no lessening of their gender dysphoria. And he saw the harm that was coming out of that. And he said, if we cannot alter the mind to fit the body, we will alter the body to fit the mind. And this was incredibly successful. The success rates for treating gender dysphoria 
outmatch, outcompete anything else in medicine. We have very highly satisfied patients when they're treated appropriately. So he is, you know, he really is a pioneer um, and went on to treat patients uh, into his 80s, I think, and maybe even see some patients into his early 90s. Um, treated hundreds of patients, and I would guess that he um, prevented many suicides and improved many people's lives during that time. He wrote, published a book in 1966. Uh, I was given this book. It's actually still, there's still some relevant material in there. Some of it's quite outdated, but uh, a fascinating individual and a very open-minded individual. So as far as treatment of adolescents, this is met with controversy. And so I think this comes out of fears. And some of the things I hear from people, they're concerned we're interfering with nature or this is an experimentation. And while I will admit we are interfering with nature, we do that quite often in medicine. Um, but I, I do not see it as an experimentation. And I, so I think with a little bit of education from healthcare providers, I often see that we can overcome these fears. What I see as the real risks to this patient population is the risk of suicide, um, by, the, by the age of 20, there's some pretty good literature on this, by the age of 20, about half of all transgender individuals will have had a suicide attempt. And you can look at a lot of literature and it's very somewhere between the high 30s to the sort of high 40 percentile range. So it's a very disturbing statistic. Um, homelessness rate in this Asian population is very large. A recent survey showed that about 40 percent of all homeless adolescents uh, were identified as transgender. And that's, you know, oftentimes they're getting kicked out of their family's home, um, facing difficult situations at home, and they're left to, out on the streets. The rates of bullying, you can imagine, are quite high. And then transgender individuals, and particularly adolescents, are at very high risk, or very high rates of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. So, what period are we talking when we're talking adolescence? So this is the period from the beginning of puberty till the end of puberty, to adulthood. And when we're talking about treating adolescents, particularly younger adolescents, we're talking about using a very safe and well-tolerated medication. We're talking about Lupron and Histrelin. Now these are medications, they've been on the market nearly 20 years, uh, and they're used for precocious puberty. So that's when puberty occurs too early. These are completely reversible medications, when they're, when they're stopped. So we start Lupron, we decide that's not the right avenue for the patient, or we feel it's time to progress puberty. We can stop these medications and the permanent effect of sex stories will, will resume just on a delayed schedule. These are used as both a treatment and a diagnostic age. And a treatment, meaning it's going to help with gender dysphoria if that's the correct diagnosis. And when I say a diagnostic aid, we are really allowing them to explore their gender identity before the permanent effect of sex steroids take hold. Um, and you can imagine how that would be beneficial. Furthermore, you're stopping those strong permanent effects of what they feel and we feel are the wrong puberty for them. So what ages are we talking? We're talking the first stages of puberty, so we call these Tanner's stages two and three. Uh, for boys, this is age 12 to 14. Girls, this is, these changes occur between 10 and 12. So other, other parts of the therapy, mental health, 
care is an important part, uh, particularly for adolescents. Um, and this consists of an initial psychological assessment, which includes a thorough gender identity evaluation. And then there are periodic or, or ongoing assessments while they're being treated. The medical therapy is the, what I call the puberty blockers. And these are the Lupron, Histralin, these type of drugs. Um, when the child is mature enough or the adolescent is mature enough, then can move on to hormone treatments. And that being the sex steroids that we associate with the permanent physical changes. So this is estradiol and testosterone. Surgical options uh, are delayed until age 18. So what are the goals of treatment? Really to lessen the emotional distress of gender dysphoria. Uh, Jack gave us a nice definition, so I can, I can skip through that. Um, and the, the current guidelines recommend proceeding with HRT, so that's what I call hormone replacement therapy, at about the age of 16. And this is because of the emotional maturity that we'd like the individual to have before we give them a medication that's going to result in irreversible effects. So in males, we're talking the enlargement enlarging of the bone structure, the Adam's apple, uh, hair growth, muscular development. In females, this is breast development. Um, distribution of body fat, these things. The other important reason for delaying hormone therapy is that we are likely risking temporary or possibly permanent infertility. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. I often think we as providers actually are more concerned about this than the patients. If you think of your hierarchy in life of what getting your needs met, for these individuals who are under such great distress, their hierarchy of priorities is to live in the gender that they perceive themselves as. And so often, biologic reproduction is, is a lower need for them. But I think that is, I predict that changing in the future. Um, I'm actually excited about that and very interested in that aspect of this. So I, I think we we're, we're already have more options than we had before as far as um, preserving their fertility. So the benefits of these treatments, the physical benefits that I talked about, we can put on hold those permanent changes that are going to make, that make life more difficult for many patients. And then that results in psychological improvement. And much of the data support that really this does lower rates of suicide, and we do see improvement in, in well-being. So this was a headline that I saw recently. So transgender teens become happy, healthy young adults. Um, it's, it's a great headline. This is a longitudinal study out of the Netherlands. So this is a large gender clinic in Amsterdam. They see both adolescents and adults, uh, very much the way I sort of would like to model our clinic in this way. So this was a fairly small study, 55 transgender adolescents. They were all placed on or, or qualified for pubertal blocking medicines. And the average age they were started on that was 14. And they were followed, so they usually for about seven years, an average of seven years, so one year after they had gender reassignment surgery. And the average age in the, in the Dutch population for that is age 21. And that's largely because they have a socialized, um, very accessible medical care system. And, and they're very proactive about treating transgender individuals and have been for some time. And really, um, the most fascinating thing about this research data was that the rates in the young adults of anxiety, emotional distress, uh, and depression was very much on par with their non-transgender peers. And this is really remarkable. 
um, when you're talking about transgender patients, that type of, of benefit from the treatment. Um, furthermore, their levels of happiness and body image were on par, if not better, than their peers. So I think very optimistic, um, very optimistic data. So this is, um, with permission, they've released these pictures so we can show that this is a, a few of that cohort. Uh, this is when they were first enrolling into the program. So they were probably just in the midst of starting up. Some of them were in the midst of starting pubertal blocking medicines. And then they come in for uh, periodic assessments. And this is five years from the first study. And I show this just to get a sense that these are kids you'd see any, you know, anywhere. There's nothing um, really all that different about them. All right, they're just trying to be kids. So just one point to clarify, and that is the difference between persistence of gender dysphoria when we're talking children versus adolescents. I've been talking about adolescents up until this point. When we look at children who display what I call cross-gender behavior play, you know, girls that are climbing trees and playing with trucks, I consider this totally normal. What we don't want people to get confused is that the kids that display some cross-gender behavior, all those kids are transgender. Absolutely not, okay? I'm sure we could do a survey here and we could find girls that were tomboys and, and boys that dressed once in a while in their sister's clothing, you know, you know, normal behavior. It's when that persists and it's, it's a strong sense of cross-gender identification, okay? When we see young kids at age five and they consider, you know, they, that's consistent, right? Even they get them to school, they're insisting on being called by their preferred uh, name and gender, and it continues. And then when it persists into adolescence and through puberty and it worsens during puberty, now we're really talking about a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, okay? So it's a real important to dis distinction to make. I don't want people to think we're treating all children that come in with some gender identity confusion. No, it's a strong, persistent identification. Uh, so this is really the guidelines, uh, just a very brief synopsis. Uh, this is still listed in the DSM, the new DSM-5. It's now listed as gender dysphoria. Uh, we could debate whether it should be in there or not, but um, for now it works, I think, is what I, the best way I can put it. So they have to have started some puberty changes before we would use these medications. And these, the changes of puberty should have increased their gender dysphoria. And then they should not have a severe psychiatric comorbidity that would interfere with the diagnosis. And this is fairly severe. We're talking psychosis um, and, and things of that nature. So just we've sort of talked about this. I think I'll emphasize here that this is a fully reversible treatment. And when I say fully reversible, these are GNRH agonists, so gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists, uh, Lupron and Histrelin. Very expensive, as you can see. Um, one thing I've learned when you, you work in both in endocrinology and with transgender patients, you have to be creative. And so one way to get around this is using an identical medication that was marketed for men with prostate cancer to turn down their testosterone. It's the same quantity, dosage, et cetera, but at a, um, a, a fraction of the cost, actually a 20th of the cost if you look per year compared to Lupron. So... And then just briefly how they work when GnRH, gonadotropin releasing hormone, is pulsatile, as you see there, then you get a stimula stimulation of LH and FSH, the gonadotropins. But when it's given in a tonic manner, 
So that's a very steady, even, continuous pattern. It shuts off your gadanotropins. And then Amsterdam has the really the only data that we have for this patient population. Uh, their cohort study, there, there are some things we're watching closely. One thing we're watching for is initial slowing of bone accrual. You accrue bone in during puberty when your sex steroids are increasing. So when you shut off puberty, uh, you do delay that. But we see that once we use sex steroids, that that is, uh, they catch up very quick and they're restored. The other interesting thing, they tend to, uh, once we use sex steroids, when it's done carefully, they tend to achieve the height of their perceived gender. So if we have a transgender male, that is a biologic female who transitions to male uh, in the Dutch population, they're quite tall. They're, you know, over six feet or close to six feet. And contrary to that, when we see a transgender girl, so biologic male who transitions to female, the height was more on par with their population for uh, biologic females, which for them, again, quite tall. I think it was close to five, six or five, seven and a half. So just an interesting, interesting point. And then sort of the future of transgender care, particularly with the adolescents, we need to collect more long-term data uh, in the adolescent population in particular and adults as well. Uh, fertility pres preservation, something I'm particularly interested in. I think we're gonna see a lot of advances in the next 10 years. Um, and then really, uh, I'd like to end on a higher point, but I think we need to remember transgender individuals are the last group to be excluded from both health insurance coverage and workplace anti-discrimination laws. Um, and this is something that needs to be addressed. Well, thank you. Great. Okay, next, uh, I'm going to have uh, Jackson Schultz come up here. I first got uh, to meet Jackson about three or four years ago when uh, he took Horace Greeley's advice in reverse, and instead of going, e uh, going west, he came east from Washington with his uh, soon-to-be husband, uh, Chris. And he uh, was a, uh, getting his master's degree in the MALS, uh, Master's in Liberal Arts Studies at Dartmouth, and wrote a thesis that I was lucky enough for him to ask me to be one of the readers. And uh, it's now going to be a book. It's coming out uh, next Tuesday. Yes. And uh, I think it's, a, you wouldn't mind if people purchased it, would you? Not at all. No. But anyways, Jackson's going to give us a brief uh, talk, uh, some of the snippets. He's going to tell us what the book's about, but something relevant to this uh, doctor-patient relationship in, in, for transgender patients. So go ahead, Jackson. So some people can't rub their belly and pat their head. I can't read and stand. So I'm going to continue to sit here. Um, and I'm also going to switch to a thicker pair of glasses because I'm very blind. <laughs> so this is the um, aforementioned book. Um, it's called Trans Portraits, Voices from Transgender Communities. Um, and as Jack said, it will be available October 6th. You can pre-order on Amazon, or if you're a local, you can get it at the Norwich Bookstore as well. Um, and it's available for Kindle or Nook as well. But we're not promoting it. No, not at all. No. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. No. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so a little bit about the book. There are interviews from 34 transgender and non-binary individuals between the ages of 15 and 72. 
Um, 44% were male identified, 41% were female identified, and 15% were non-binary identified. Um, 23% also had some sort of mental or physical disability, um, and 41% were people of color, because it was very important to me to have a really diverse demographic, because we don't often hear from voices even within the transgender community that are even more marginalized um, within that community. So to begin, I'm going to start with a selection that isn't exactly medically related, but that articulates my justification and purpose in writing this book. So the first interviewee is Bella, who is a trans woman who is now in her 60s, who lives in the South. She says, I transitioned when I was 52. My whole life, I had known I was different, but I could never put a finger on what exactly the problem was. As a poor black man, I felt that college was beyond my reach. So like most of my high school buddies, I joined the Navy. The great thing about being in the military was that I didn't have to think. People told me what to wear, when to eat, when to sleep, when to use the latrine. I liked being a sailor because all of my decisions were made for me, and I didn't have to think about who I wanted to be. When I got out of the Navy and had more time to think, I realized that I had all of these feelings. I didn't know what to do about them, but oh, were they there. I talked to people and I did some reading, but the tales I heard over and over again were about white gay men who transitioned to become straight women. Well, there wasn't any place for a man who was attracted to women and who wanted to be a woman himself. I couldn't find myself reflected in their stories. That's the problem. When you're a person of color, your stories just aren't told. Even now that I can look up whatever I fancy on the internet, I can hear all of these stories and I can find all of this information, but none of it is my truth. For years and years, we've been put under the magnifying glass while white doctors and psychiatrists have written volumes of books about us and we haven't got to say a word about it. Our voices have been silenced long enough. It's about damn time that somebody let us tell our truths. Next, we'll hear from Kelly, who is now 19. She grew up in Maine, but is in college currently in Iowa. She says, I came out to my family when I was 12. Luckily, my moms are lesbians, so not only were they unsurprised by my revelation, but they were also really supportive. Being a part of the LGBT community, they already knew trans women who could point them in the right direction. I'm one of those extremely lucky people who came out before I started puberty. My mom's pushed really hard for me to be able to take puberty-suppressing hormones. Basically, hormone blockers just give trans youth a medication that tells your body to press pause on puberty. Once you've met the other therapy requirements, you can start taking estrogen or testosterone and go through puberty as your desired sex instead of your biological sex. The standards of care suggest that youth wait until they are 16 to start taking testosterone or estrogen, but my mom convinced my doctor to let me start taking estrogen when I was 14. I'm one of those very rare trans women who hasn't had to have surgery in order to pass. I never went through puberty as a boy, so I didn't get that tall. My shoulders aren't wide, I don't have an Adam's apple, and I never got hairy. Most trans women are fighting against all of the effects of having gone through puberty, so they have to take estrogen along with other testosterone-blocking medications. Many of them will have their tracheas shaved to reduce the size of their Adam's apples. I never had to have electrolysis because I didn't have a beard. I never had to go to voice coaching because my voice never dropped. Come to think of it, neither did anything else. <laughs> Next we hear from Raphael, who works for a social justice organization in Chicago that focuses on providing legal advocacy for transgender inmates. He says, I had to reschedule my top surgery. 
A lot of people will fly to some large city to see a surgeon, meet with them the day before, have surgery, and then stick around until they are healed enough to fly home. This was the case for me. I had my appointment scheduled, but at my pre-surgery appointment, I realized I was going to have to cancel. The surgeon had me take off my shirt so that he could draw the surgical lines on my chest. He became ridiculously flustered because the lines from his dark purple marker weren't visible on my skin. He called the nurse in to ask if they had a marker for black people. It was really awkward, so I tried to fill the embarrassed silent void with questions. I asked him about the possibility of scarring, and he told me, Yeah, I don't know how your scarring will look. I've never worked on a black person before. I decided that it would be better for everyone involved if I found a surgeon who had worked on black people. Top surgeons always have long wait lists, so I was really disappointed that I had to delay my surgery by several months, but I'm so glad that I did. My results were great, and I didn't pay thousands of dollars to a surgeon who didn't even have a marker that could draw on my skin. So Wendy just turned 70, and she's a trans woman who, prior to her transition, was an, in an investment broker for a large multinational corporation. She says, five or six years ago, I had already started transitioning. I was read as female pretty frequently. I wanted to see the doctor because I had slipped off a curb while walking, and I was pretty sure I had broken my ankle. I told the doctor what had happened, and as is routine, he asked what medications I was taking. I told him I was on estrogen, blah, blah, blah. At that point, I had been taking estrogen for years, and of course, it's not big news to me that I'm trans. The conversation shifted very quickly, however, to whether or not I had undergone genital reconstruction. I'm not a doctor, but I'm reasonably certain that whether or not I have a vagina has nothing to do with how I broke my ankle. <laughs> Vicky is in her early 20s and lives with her parents in New Mexico. She says, I've had cross-gender feelings my entire life, but I've only had the vocabulary to express my identity for the past few years. I knew I wanted to transition, but when I brought it up with my counselor, my other mental health issues came into play. I put myself in a really vulnerable state by telling my counselor that I was transgender and intended on transitioning. She replied, but you have schizoaffective disorder. How can you possibly know that you're trans? How could you possibly know what's real about your identity? And now we hear from Eric, who's in his early 30s and is a PhD student at the University of Washington. He says, I have chronically occurring urinary tract infections, which are really common in women and not so common in men. Every time I go to the doctor, they say, well, UTIs aren't very common in men, so we need to test you for STDs. I know I don't have an STD. I know my body. I have a UTI. Not to mention that I'm monogamous. So for the 20th time, I'll explain to the offending nurse or doctor, I'm biologically female. I have a vagina. I have a urinary tract infection. Then they'll put me on antibiotics. If I miss a day of work, I can't say that I have a urinary tract infection, nor can I say that I have a kidney infection, because it might raise a red flag. I have to lie and say kidney stones or something else that won't raise an eyebrow. This is such common knowledge that I've been told by non-doctors, you have a UTI? That's so uncommon in men. I always think, well, I'm a really uncommon man. I have a vagina. <laughs> Hillary is in her 40s and is an organic chemist in Virginia. She says, being a fat woman, my mental health problems get taken quite unseriously, and that's a very big problem. You're depressed? Lose weight. You're deaf? Lose weight. You're autistic? Lose weight. Yeah, thanks. That's helpful. 
There is a lot of medical gatekeeping around weight, and even more so for trans people. I have vaginoplasty coming up in a few months, and I have to lose X number of pounds before then because Lord knows we can't let the fatties through the system. I've spoken to more than one surgeon in this community who explained to me that people with large body mass index don't get good results, which means they don't have good pictures to put up on their websites. My response? Learn to get good results on bodies that are fat. Throughout the book, um, I provide some contextual information, so this is an excerpt of my voice. There are many trans people who self-identify as fat who are unsurprisingly frustrated with the medical gatekeeping surrounding weight and surgery. Surgeons are often likewise frustrated when they cannot provide gender-confirming surgeries to overweight patients but are concerned with the higher risks of complications and wound healing. However, these gaps can sometimes be bridged by trans folk who also work in healthcare, as they can provide really insightful recommendations for how to make medical settings more trans-friendly. So in that vein, we'll hear from Diane, who is now in her 50s and was a registered nurse until her multiple, multiple sclerosis caused her to retire early. She says, as a former healthcare provider, I was in a position to speak up if I heard medical discrimination. I corrected people if I heard them use the wrong pronoun for a patient. We had a nurse who had been working with trans patients for 20 years, and I would still correct her own pronouns if she got them wrong. She would correct me if I made mistakes as well. Sometimes it's not clear in which direction a patient is transitioning and it's okay to ask them for their preferred pronouns. Most of the time, they will be really grateful that you asked instead of just assumed. It doesn't matter who I'm treating. My role as a healthcare provider was to be an advocate for patients. If I wasn't doing that, I wasn't doing my job. And lastly, we'll hear from Curtis, who transitioned when he was 15 and is currently in his late 20s. He says, I currently have the best medical care I've ever received. My doctor is brilliant and he's incredibly compassionate. He is an endocrinologist, and he basically treats all of the trans folk in the area. He works at the public medical center and runs the student health center as well. I have no idea how he finds time to do everything. One of the reasons that he's such an amazing advocate is because he lets trans folk speak for themselves. He provides trainings to his fourth-year advanced medical students each year and asks a panel of transgender patients to tell them stories about health care. I've sat on panels that he's arranged to train, to train endocrinology section nurses, the billing and reception staff at the hospital, various groups of medical students, and even a licensed practitioner conference. My doctor will get up, give a short speech about the medical science of transitioning, and open the floor for four or five of his trans patients to tell our stories. Sounds familiar. <laughs> Unlike all of my prior physicians, he didn't say, take your clothes off so I can see if I actually want to work with you. Instead, he said, how are you? How long have you been on hormones? Okay, have you had any problems? No? Great. If you do have any problems, feel free to talk to me. Before the exam, I asked if I'd need to get undressed. He said, I'm never going to make you take your clothing off. Because I'm your doctor, I have to suggest that you get a yearly pelvic exam, but I'm not going to force you to as a prerequisite for seeing me because I know that's really uncomfortable for many trans patients. That's the most respectful a doctor has ever been to me. With all the terrible treatment I've received over the years, I lived in fear of going to the doctor. Finally meeting a doctor that was respectful toward me has been incredible. It gives me hope for the future. We need more compassionate doctors like this. Yes, there will always be a handful of medical professionals who are purposefully discriminatory, but I think overall, the majority of them just hadn't, haven't had much exposure to trans folk. The more we can increase their level of understanding, the better the treatment we're going to get. 
This work is invaluable, and I'm so glad to know that for every healthcare provider who refuses to treat a trans patient, there is another one out there batting for us. Thank you. Yeah, so next we're going to have one of your own. Gail McNeil is going to uh, talk, introduce the panelists and get us going and have some questions and answers. So if you, if you want to write some questions down and pass them to here, that may accelerate things. But uh, so Gail, go ahead. Is it on? Is this on? Yeah, it is. Normally, I sit with the panelists. I don't know what I was doing up here, but Jack seemed to think it was important, so there it I was. Well, there's another seat next to Barbie. Okay, hi, good afternoon. Uh, thank you, Dr. Turco, Dr. Bo, and thank you to the organizers. I'm Gail McNeil. I've been an RN at Dartmouth-Hitchcock for 11 years, most of that in the orthopedic clinic, but I was privileged to have a year in perioperative services. You are still my people, if there are anybody out there. Before Dartmouth-Hitchcock, I worked for some years in case management, and prior to that, about 10 years as the night nurse at a private boarding school. After exhaustive research while at that job, it was determined that I was the only lesbian transsexual school nurse in the known universe. I've met others since, but it's still a pretty exclusive club. I've been doing presentations with my friends and colleagues on what it means to be trans for close to 20 years. Grammar schools, high schools, church groups, public presentations, endless college phys ed department health classes, mental health counselors and social workers, every Dartmouth and Geisel medical school class for 10 years. And obviously Dr. Turco's patients have been doing them for a lot longer than that. Somehow though, along the way, we neglected nurses, my closest colleagues. For this, my brothers and sisters, I apologize. What is most striking to us as trans men and women in our interactions with nurses is the unpredictably unpredictability. Some of our experiences have been stellar. Some, including here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, have been, I had two alternative endings to this sentence, depending on how I felt at this point. One was significantly less so. The other one was shockingly poor. Pick your own. A lot has changed in a brief moment of time. Fifteen years ago, I remember the members of a panel being asked at a large public forum while we were, why we were willing to publicly identify ourselves as trans when it could easily mean that we ended up beaten to death or shot on leaving the venue. My answer was that I would risk anything to see the age of transition drop to make sure the information was out there for everyone to access when I had taught myself to read at the age of four because I was in such desperate need of information on who I was, on what I was, and why people looked at me that way when I was just being a little girl. We've succeeded beyond our wildest imaginations. Also, where before all the, all the emphasis was on male to female transgender population, all of our vocabulary, everything we thought was based on male to female people. Our community has proven the helping professionals wrong that we're so sure that female to male transgender people were an insignificantly tiny minority. The FDM population has changed the discourse so much for the better. What we did not envision then was the emergence of a large number of folks who have stepped completely outside the gender binary that is they don't identify as male or female. So where does this leave us as nurses? I believe that as the years go on, our challenge does not change. We have dedicated our lives to human caring, to names, genitalia, clothes, who someone chooses to love affect our nursing judgment. 
or the quality or quantity of our caring any more than the color of their hair. I hope not. Things to think about. Now, let me get to the rest of the panel. But let me also say that when Jack was talking about putting his book together, I said something about me being interviewed. They said, oh, we interviewed you. You did? <laughs> when was that? Um, don't you remember, like, being at Salt Hill? And we said, oh, really? OK, so yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, I remember those nights, I think. So um, let's uh, go on. So we're going to take five minutes apiece, I think. Let me take mine. Unless, Barbie Ann, do you want a time? Or time. you can do the time. So um, Barbie Ann will go first. And Jack, do you want another five minutes? Or OK. Come on. Is this is the big one on or do you have I don't think it is. It is on. Okay. I like these things. All right. Let me let me start out. I'm not gonna talk too much today about myself because uh, anyway. I a typical story, knew early, uh kept things hidden, transitioned later in life. But that's still, that's 20 years ago I transitioned. A year later, I first saw Jack here. And so, and I had surge, genital surgery 15 years ago. This is kind of old hat. But I want to talk about my father today. He died in February the 13th, two days short of his 98th birthday. He, so this man was born in 1917. He served in World War II with, uh, he was enlisted with a medical staff that was mostly from Duke Medical School. 65th General Hospital in England, they patched up the bomber pilots and crew. You want to look at the beginning of a lot of emergency room medicine? Look them up. So he had a small part in that. Uh, I, I think my parents saw something, but they just ignored it which was neither good nor bad. It was, what do, how do you acknowledge something in the 50s and 60s? But anyway, uh, when, I, when I got, after a divorce in the late, later nine, mid to late 1990s, I told my father, and he's, he seemed to be all right, but we, we struggled for a while, particularly when I transitioned. He would come, he came and visited me a couple times. I had him spend uh, a session with the counselor I was seeing then, and then, when I came out, my mother had died a few years earlier. Two bunches of family, my mother's sisters all gathered around and basically supported me. Family, that was, you know, and helped him. But anyway, so, you know, it took him a while. There were times he flubbed names and flubbed pronouns. But 15 years ago, when I went up to Montreal for surgery, he paid half of it. And during that time, we got closer together closer and closer because there was no more secrets and secrets are hard on anybody and in the last few years his health started to deteriorate he didn't drive anymore I spent a lot of time in New Jersey with him my cat came along and provided a third family member and as I said the last two years there was a lot of time there but before that I remember one time I was sick he got on the bus from his retirement community and brought back soup for me that's the kind of man he was I mean, he changed 
the names and everything on his will long before I even knew he had done it. And I say, in the last few years, I was, we spent more time in emergency rooms and hospitals in New Jersey than I'd like to think about. Thank you, but, you know, that's not my thing. But I was able to help him. I was able to keep records. I was able to take him to doctor's visits. And I was there as his daughter. And toward the end, occasionally, when he was home for a brief period, when I had to, you know, clean up messes because the bowels and the bladders were not completely holding on, I could hear him sometimes stop. He'd first call and then... He'd make sure he had the name right, made sure he had the name right. And so, you know, he said, you shouldn't have to face this. And I said, you did this for me. I'm doing this. About the beginning of February, it was like a, something went off in his head and he just stopped fighting. He went into the hospital for a week, went into hospice, was in fully in hospice on a Tuesday Wednesday, he could still talk, although it was a little fuzzy. He mentioned me, I'm married. are you still married to this person? No, that's long in the past. Thursday, he was asleep. Friday afternoon, while no one was there in the hospice, which was fortunately very close, he just died quietly in his sleep. This watch was his. Uh, a previous watch needed a new battery. Beginning of the holiday season, the local call said, here, take another one. Unfortunately, we washed it, got stuck in his pants when we had an accident. So I gave him this one and said, look, it's almost your birthday. And so just take this one, you know, just uh, so we're sure. And so we did. And the nurse gave it to me. It was still warm. What I'm going to say in a very few seconds is support means everything. For me, if it's not for my father, if it's not for me being his child and in the end his daughter, I wouldn't be here. Uh, you may have to be the support for somebody when the family doesn't show up. I will take about 10 seconds, I promise. Come on, duck. That's what it is. But in this case, medical care is important, but you may have to be the person for this. He was there for me. I lost my best friend. I lost the brightest light in my life. And if you see me, if you see anything really outstanding or good, it's because of this man from 1917 who struggled but accepted. That's what we're about. Thank you. So, Jack, <laughs> this is about you this time or from you. You can, you can stay there. <laughs> I grew up in a town of a thousand people in rural eastern Washington, quite close to the Idaho border. And while Washington is a blue state, that's only because Seattle has a lot of people in it, the whole rest of the state can be very, very conservative. So in a town of a thousand people and six churches, um, that was a rough environment. We didn't get internet access until 2006, which was quite late um, because we were so isolated. And so 
as a kid, I had seen gay and lesbian people on TV. Not always the best depictions, but I thought they exist in big cities like L.A. and New York, but certainly not in Waitsburg, Washington. Um, and so I had a lot of feelings. I had a lot of thoughts in my head that I didn't have the vocabulary to express until much later on in my life. And so it wasn't until I left that town and went to college that I really began to have the vocabulary that I needed to start expressing my identity. And so I moved to Pullman, Washington to attend Washington State University. And so I went to a huge, huge metropolis of a city that had 26,000 people. Um, and I truly thought that it was a metropolis because it was so much larger than the town in which I had grown up. Um, and I became quickly very much involved with um, the, the Gay Straight Student Alliance on campus and at the end of my freshman year came out as lesbian, um, which was not a surprise to anyone. Um, the, as, as, as I started sort of accepting and embracing my own lesbian identity, I became more and more masculine. Um, there is a particular group of lesbians that I hung out with who all had very short hair and they mostly wore men's clothing or they cross-dressed or they looked very androgynous and ambiguous. And so I started doing all of those things too. And at some point, they sort of, they continued to do all of those things, but in the trajectory of their masculinity, at some point they stopped and I just kept going. Um, and... I finally developed the vocabulary to understand what was going on. I had known a few transgender people, mostly transgender women, um, but I had never met a transgender man that I knew of. And I attended a conference, it was a queer conference um, in Portland, Oregon, and there was an individual who ran a workshop who was strikingly handsome. And even as a lesbian, I thought, damn. <laughs> and at the end of the workshop, he mentioned offhandedly that he was transgender, that he had born, been born female and had transitioned to male. And I thought, wow, that was such a defining moment um, in my own life that I just, the wheels started turning very quickly in my head. And I sort of thought, I've met somebody transgender. Maybe this is something that applies to me. Maybe this is something I have to do. And so I ditched out on the next conference section and I went and talked to a very close friend of mine who was also at the conference. And I told her, I just met a trans man for the first time in my life. And I think, I think I might be transgender. I think this is something that I might have to do. And she's like, you know, other trans men. It's like, no, no, I don't. And she said, well, Christopher is transgender. And this Christopher here, who I had known for six months prior to the conference, but I had not known that he was transgender. And so as soon as she gave me this information about him, which he gave her permission to do, um, but once I learned that he was transgender, I started bugging him all the time. I sent him texts because I had so many questions. What do I do next? Who do I talk to? Where do I get hormones? How do I talk to a counselor? What do I do? What do I do? And so I started bugging him. Um, there's a Facebook record of all of these correspondence that I can just look back on and laugh. It's wonderful. So after um, several months of constantly pestering him, uh, we started dating because I wouldn't stop bugging him. Um, and so we've been... the only reason why. But we've been married for 
six and a half years, going on six and a half years, um, because I just never stopped bugging him. Um, and so I will pass the microphone over to him. Oh, okay. I have to say one thing. Uh-oh. Jack gave me the line uh, a couple of years ago. I think of the first um, one of these we did together where he said that he was unacceptably... He said that he was unacceptably... Hi, Barbie. Put a sock in it. Shut that duck up. Jack said that he was unacceptably masculine as a woman and unacceptably feminine as a man. I cherish that. Fabulous. So, now we have Chris. Hello. Um... So my story starts a little bit earlier and kind of follows more of the traditional trajectory that you see projected for trans stories. As you can kind of take from here, that last story that Jack shared, that's part of my story. I came out when I was 15 to my family. After many, many years of growing up in a town 20 miles away from where Jack grew up, we have a lot of mutual friends that we discovered later on and thought we never met before this really i grew up in a community that had a minimum of two seventh-day adventist churches the grocery store was run by seventh-day adventists there was not a gas station that wasn't run by seventh-day adventists the town shut down from friday night to sunday morning we were very much entrenched in this religious system. So much so that you could go from preschool to a four-year university without leaving it. Very much enveloped in this. And I remember growing up, no one had to tell me that how I was feeling was wrong. Their silence around these issues was enough to tell me that I should not disclose this to anybody else. I had the vocabulary of sex change surgery in my brain in preschool. I can't tell you where it came from, but I can tell you that it was there. And that I, while some kids were playing house, I was playing sex change surgery. Okay? Not with other kids, okay? Don't take that the wrong way. But it was something that I often imagined and thought, this is what I need to do, but I can't tell anybody about it. Because as many sermons as I heard about being gay, I didn't need to hear anything about being trans. I knew it was wrong. It wasn't until I was about 12 years old and I stumbled across an article in a Teen People magazine, once again, don't judge me, <laughs> about trans teenagers who had come out and their families totally accepted them. They were on either puberty suppressing hormones or they were on cross hormones. And I could probably have just told you their stories verbatim because I read that story so many times and I hid it under my mattress like a playboy you don't want your mom to find because I was terrified that if somebody saw me with it, they'd figure it out. And it took me another year or so to really come to terms with, shit, this is something I have to do. I have to tell somebody about this and I have to move forward with it. But it took a suicide attempt to get me there, to get me into counseling and to spend probably the most frustrating year with a counselor who just looked at me while I sat there in silence because I couldn't figure out how do I tell you how I feel because I don't know how you're going to respond. 
I came out to my family and left the Seventh-day Adventist school system when I was 15 years old. And it was so liberating. It was wonderful. I was so excited because I was going to get to go to the next town over and go to school there. It was so exciting and foreign. And I was going to a public school. I was so rebellious. I was very excited. It took a lot of gatekeeping because at the time, I mean, this is, oh, I don't even want to think about it, 12 years ago? It's very upsetting to be in my late 20s. I crossed that threshold less than a week ago. I'm still very upset about it. But it was a very important experience, especially within this very small community. I lost half of my family because they came from Seventh-day Adventist missionaries. So we took it one step forward towards conservative mo notion of all of the religious community. And they didn't talk to me for about five years. But it was a very touching moment when they came back. Because what happened was my grandparents on my father's side sent me a VHS of an Oprah episode they had recorded. And they said, hey, we saw this episode. We stayed up late on a, on a Friday night to watch this episode of Oprah, which is huge. Because once, once again, you don't do anything from Friday night to Sunday morning that's not church. Um, but they sent it to me. And they said this was really helpful to us. And they finally started talking to me again. It was a pretty big moment. Um, but by the time I had gotten to my community college, I pretty much passed and was read as male 100% of the time. So when I transferred to our four-year university, I relished in the opportunity to be stealth, to not be seen as trans, which is why a lot of folks didn't know. Because I was testing the waters. No one had to know. It was so exciting. And that got old pretty quickly. Because I realized that there was a lot of work to still be done. And we've continued that line of work because it is so important to be visible and to be mentors and to be part of a population that is contributing to a lot of these panels, to the education of others, and to really make things better for the youth who are coming behind us. Thank you. We can just keep passing the mic along. Our buddy from Texas. <laughs> this is Sean. Hello. Well, my story is a little bit different. Of course, everybody else, everybody's is. Um, I moved up here in 2011. I'm 47 years old. I left a career of 17 years as a lieutenant in the Texas uh, criminal justice system working in the penitentiary. I knew at an early age, five years old, that I was different, but I didn't have the resources until I, the internet came out and I was watching TV and I'm like, hey, that's who I am. I couldn't tell anybody in my family, being from Texas, it's a Southern Baptist state. <laughs> that's one of the reasons why I left. I knew that before I turned 20, uh, 45, if I wasn't going to be able to change to who I am now, I wouldn't be sitting here today. That's why I gave up my friends, my career to move up here. I didn't know any trans men until I met them. I kept myself very secluded. 
and worked a lot. <laughs> um, I get nervous when I sit up here and talk. <laughs> I had a thought in my head and then I, I lost it. But it wasn't an easy journey when I first moved up here because I didn't know anybody. I worked for the penitentiary in Springfield for two years. When I started going through my changes, I was discriminated against very badly. So I had to give up my whole total career. Now I work in a grocery store, which I'm happy about. <laughs> uh, I'm only three years into my transition and I learn different things every time I come up here and speak. I went home last year for the first time after changing and my family and friends were just so happy for me because they knew that I just lived a very secluded, depressed life. And they knew that I wouldn't be sitting here if I didn't come up here and go through the struggles I had to go through. I'm glad it happened at this age. I wish it could have happened earlier, but at least I could come up here and educate people. I do still go through discrimination when people find out who I am. So at work, I'm very stealth. No one knows. It's a man's job from what I do. It's kind of strange being on the other side and just trying to live how the heterosexual males live and try to hide my other feelings that I have. It's like, wow, I can't believe y'all really talk like this. <laughs> so sometimes I feel awkward when I'm trying to fit in and I have to like, <clears throat> kind of spit on the ground like they do and kind of talk like them. <laughs> but uh, I just want to share a little story that happened to me in with the nurse Friday, last Friday. And this is huge why we come and do this. I had to come to ER because my back went out and the nurse is checking me in. And she's going through my med list. Of course, the door is wide open. And I'm thinking to myself, why is this door open? You have it here for a reason. Shut it. But she gets down to, okay, you, take, you have needles. You have testosterone. Are you trans? Whole ER room filled with people. My face turns a little red because I'm getting upset that you're violating my privacy to ask me this why there's a lot of patients out there. So under my breath, I'm like, yeah, is this relevant to why I'm here? I didn't come here because I'm trans. I came here because my back hurts. Then they stick me out in the hallway because the ER is full in the back and doctors going through my bed list asked me the same question. I almost walked out, but I needed to get medical attention. So I guess that's, it's very important that our privacy is protected. I guess that's all I have to say. Okay. We're very big on confidentiality and very poor on privacy. And that is a serious problem here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock as much as anything else. Our um, ED 
uh, reception area is built for acoustics. Um, if you're standing talking to the very pleasant older ladies who are, require you to speak everything very loudly, who are behind the desk, um, you're speaking into a, it's a hard floor. It's like a hardwood walls in the corner. And if you speak so they can hear you, so can everybody in the middle of the waiting room every time you check in. And sometimes we say, why is this relevant again? And when I go to see my primary care provider and whoever comes to pick me up from the waiting room manages to call me sir three times between the waiting room and the exam room, all of about 50 feet, I say, what are you looking at? Oh, you're looking at my health history. How nice. So um, we have, this is an ever shifting group of people um, as it has been over years. We're welcoming Nikki for the first time. And so. And I just wanted go. to say, I'm yeah. not sure I prepared Nikki that to tell her, her story. So you can, you can say, say as you little want. or as much to That's be right. part of the panel. You want to juggle three oranges? So. We'll get you oranges. <laughs> Hi. Hi, everyone. Well, I, <clears throat> it's my first time, and um, I, I'm going to make this a little different. Um, uh, Dr. Turco, uh, he mentioned to me if, he, if I would be interesting to come over here and talk to you nurses and uh, about how to um, talk to the patients in my condition that I'm transgender, obviously. <laughs> but... Uh, um, so, because it's my first time, I'm gonna make it a little different. So if you have any questions, please feel free and open and ask me anything you want. Because uh, I was listening to this beautiful people here, this gentleman and this lady over here. But my story is a little, a little different from, from all, I would say all of them. Because I would consider myself, I, I was born different. I was born transgender. And uh, so I went through um, different kind of phases through, I would say, uh, people uh, even uh, among um, gay community, they were rejecting me because they saw that I was, they always saw that I was female. And so I actually I was talking with one of my brothers, that he's a lawyer, and I said, you know what, you don't know the, the, the the rejection at all that I would say that I have more rejection in the gay community than the straight community because the, the appearance of, of myself and, and like Dr. Turco mentioned to me once that maybe you don't have any problem because you're very small and you're passable. And I said, well, you don't know because I mean, even the gay communi community, they, uh, well, that was years, years ago. I, I would say that they were say, well, you're in the wrong place, you know, you, they try to put you away in a different area. So I feel a little you know, rejection because I said, my God, I came here because I, I, I what do you say, I, when I was in the stray community or the stray world, I, I felt uh, a little, <clears throat> what do you say, um, harassment because um, they always tell me, what well, you, you look like a girl, you sound like a girl, you're very pretty. I heard that all the time. 
And I said, okay, so so then I felt like I said, with these people, they only talk about those subjects. You know, you're pretty, you're this and that, but nothing else. It's just um, I'm a person. Made me feel like a person. But that was the the straight world, the straight community. I said, well, I I, I won't I don't want to be technical like community and labels and stuff. But I said they they were treating me differently. So then I had to go through the gay world. And I did learn a lot of stuff. I, 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 w- I was amazed of uh, how even gay people, like I mentioned to my brother, I said, you don't know, uh, even among gay people, there's discriminations. Uh, it's the ones that, because they're more feminine than others, they call the names, so they, they bullying them for that particular. <laughs> and the females, they, it's the same way. So what's very interesting to me, I said, my God, this, this is a very interesting world. This is, but why, why, am I, why am I here? You know, it's just, I, I always liked music. Um, I was a professional dancer for years. And that was actually my escape to, to deal with my gender identity and, uh, and to find out who I really was. And, but, but for years, I was say, where, 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 what I am, where, what I, I go here and, the men, especially men, they harassing me, right? And, and then a stray man harassing me. And then I go to the gay world and they say, well, no, you're in the wrong place, girl. You go, should go to them over there. And it's okay. And the, what's interesting that some female, gay females, they found me attractive. <laughs> and I say, okay, thank you, back. <laughs> <laughs> That's very nice. I'll be back now. I mean... Just, I don't, I don't want to hurt your feelings, just not my cup of tea, so. <laughs> but then uh, I would say it was interesting how, um, I would say I, I did learn from both different worlds and the straight and gay that uh, I was more, um, not, I would say that was more bullying the, the straight, the, the gay world for the appearance, because like you didn't. They probably I got them sometimes I got them confused. But the straight world was very interesting because they never care about my genitalia area. I said, Well, you know what, you're very pretty, you sound like a female. Oh I don't care. I say, oh, okay. Uh, usually so then I was shared this with you. I've been with my husband. Uh, we finally got married five years ago, but we've been together for what, 20, 25 years? 25 years. So then, uh, and it's interesting because when we go out and, uh, and very, very rarely uh, men, I would say men, uh, they, they can tell that I'm transgender. And so, uh, and I would say just, I would say probably people will have a lot, a lot of experience and they can see something uh, they they would say, "Well, you are a little different, right?" I said, "Well, I guess so. If you say that, well, a little different." But then I said, "Well, um, if you know something different about me, um, why are you talking to me? What you interested about myself?" And uh, so, but anyway, so I don't want to make this long search. I mean, long, long, long. But the thing is that uh, I. I was listening to every single one of them, and it's very interesting because uh, they, um, it's, it's, 
for them, I think it wasn't, it, it hasn't been easy to be who they are right now. And for me, I was privileged because I was born this way. And then interesting, I have to go through what they went and try to fit in some, in some uh, world. So then I start taking what they're taking. Give me what they're taking so I will go there and I won't have any problems. So, so then I start getting a little kind of, uh, my, my, my head got wearing a little kind of confused. I said, why? I don't see anything different. I feel the same. The only thing that I got was I have, I have hair. <laughs> I have hair, so I've grown hair. And I exercise immensely, working out every single day. And I say, oh, I want to get muscles and, you know, just just go with the flow to say not to feed someplace. Just be accepted for either. I mean, for especially for, for now, the straight world. And uh, so then um, <clears throat> so then I said, well, uh, this this is not working. So I spoke to my doctor about it. I said, listen, I. I was talking to my husband just the other day. I was kicked out of the, the men's rooms like five times with no makeup, not dressed like this. And it was like, my God, the, 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 the guy that works at the mall, he, he called them. I mean, the people called them the guy that, um, that works at the mall, right? The security guard. And uh, they said, there's a lady in the restroom. And then I say, well, five times in Macy's, two times in Home Depot. <laughs> so it was interesting because I said, what's going on? I don't worry, no makeup, no high heels, nothing. And they still, these people, they probably see something that I'm not seeing. Um, so they, they were actually, they were educating me to the fact that I said, you know what? Uh, uh, what's going on? So I, I went to, to, to talk to some people about, about this, professional people about this. So, well, you just were born this way. You know, it's just people, they, you know, if they see you as a female, you know, you need to start accepting who you really are and just do something about it. So then my doctor referred me to Dr. Turco. And then I said, you know what, um, I want to go back where I started it. Because since five, six years ago, I started seeing differences about me, my appearance, my voice, my everything, my body, and, and again, guys that were nuts, right, of course. And uh, so, um, <clears throat> so how would I say, um, is to me, it's, it's been an excellent and an amazing experience because I'm able to understand not only the straight, community of the straight world, but the gay world also, and also um, transgender, and people see me as a transgender person as well, okay? But I, I want- Okay, Nikki, I'm gonna cut you off there because we need to spend at least 20 minutes okay. question okay. and answer. You'll sure. get a chance to talk, uh, okay. to respond to the answers. So okay, get, sure, okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, we have a pretty small group. Uh, we were going to allow more time for question and answer, but we ran a little longer, as we always seem to do. So, people, questions? I have a question. Go ahead. Um, I work in psychiatry. We see a fair amount of people who are in the um, transgender process. 
Um, and I always feel like I would like to recommend a support group or some sort of supportive resources, but I don't have any. So is that anything that you could touch on? Don't we wish. I mean, online, I, I get Can you know their groups or their... Gail, can you repeat the questions because... Okay, looking for, I mean, in this area, are we talking about? Right, looking for support groups, supportive resources in the area, in this area. And my reply, my smart ass reply was, don't we wish? Um, we don't have a lot in this area. Um, there's been a lot of encouragement back and forth and trying to get that going. There are some informal small groups that meet at various times, but there is not a trans support group. Maybe we have to look a little closer at something a little more narrowly focused than we've looked at before. I certainly have patients that go down, go long distances, Salem, Massachusetts. I'm thinking there's one northern, uh, other parts of northern Massachusetts. And I think it, you know, pa patients that we see come from long distances. So the problem is, is just to have enough people in one area to be able to, to meet. But we certainly do kind of need, need that. I know PFLAG uh, a f 10, 15 years ago did have um, uh, some transgender uh, p uh, parents of transgender uh, individuals. And, and, but I think it depends on who happens to be taking part at the time. So that's certainly a great need that we all recognize. There's the Upper Valley Rainbow Alliance. And they have, um... That's the three of us, basically. Hello. 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 There's an uh, opportunity for more people to be involved. And you have um, irregular, but you offer opportunities for a social evening, for a gathering. There's the... Um, Transgender Day of Remembrance that they run at the Unitarian. At the UU, yeah. They're very supportive. So it may be that it's just you, but I mean, if, yeah. if, people, people, if, if people in the yeah. medical community are looking for somewhere and an outlet and other people for the trans community to gather together, that's something that's already in existence and it could grow. Right. We, we might have to... We, I think our problem came is that we were trying to cast too wide a net, and this would be something more narrowly focused. <clears throat> so maybe we should look a little more thoroughly at that. And that's another reason for our webpage, if we can get some resources on there so people could at least be aware of this and then connect. And before you know it, you know, you may have five or six people who are meeting on a regular basis. I guess we're getting a little more for the folks on the TV over there. We're getting a little more concrete request for a um, transgender support group, possibly something like once a month, which is normally about when they meet. We're going to have to, yeah, we'll we'll take a little closer look at it, see what we can find for mm -hmm. faci facilitators, et cetera. And I think this is going probably to come on me, but that's okay because we we know all of our schedules. So I have to say that's a great idea because for me coming up here. I've had to do everything on my own, and I'm still doing things on my own because I know that these guys are busy, I'm busy, but when I'm trying to reach out to people, it's like really hard just trying to get out of the house and do stuff because there's no trans community up here, especially for people my age. I think that's a great idea. 
I think there's a need, and I think you would find that um, people would come. If you build it, they will come. Yeah. <laughs> so and busted. I had just one quick addition. Uh, with the development of the adolescent clinic here, we hope to, as a long-term plan, have a psychologist orchestrate an adolescent-specific um, program. So we're talking about people under the age of 18. So that's something that, you know, will be yeah. up on the website. Adolescent, we, you know, we, having worked with um, Outright and stuff like that, yeah, we would, it would be good to have because it has to be separate groups. Folks in TV land, anybody have a question over there? No? Are you there? Hello. Hi. Good. You are still breathing. Okay. More questions. I have a question about the privacy issue you talked about, and I know it's a problem everywhere here. And when we moved to this building, we had hopes that there would be consultation rooms on every inpatient nursing unit, and they immediately went the way of coming offices, so they were gone. So um, for those areas, I, I live in the inpatient world, and for those areas that are double dead rooms, we struggle with this all the time, and, and not just for this issue, but for talking to anybody about anything of privacy. So I'm wondering if you have any creative ideas, whether they're knocking down walls or creating walls or whatever, for addressing privacy issues. I think that um, one or both of those is going to have to happen, knocking down walls or putting up walls. Um, if you go to, um, it's a question of the privacy versus confidentiality. Um, if you go to most places where you are checking in in an emergency department, there's a, you know, a little gap where you kind of put your head through and tell the people what's up. Um, you know, when I walk into a room to do pre-ops and you know when we're talking about you live in the inpatient world i live in the outpatient world where um in orthopedics between 3a 3c and 3d we run 500 people through those two check-in desks a day um and i'll walk in and sit down with a with a pre-op patient and they say yes i'm so and so this is my date of birth and i still don't have black lung you know because you get asked all of these questions loudly and um, you see somebody's face when they're when they're told well you don't have insurance so we ask for a $50 payment today can you do that um, or if you've ever seen somebody stand there and go through the MRI safety questions that's a hoot so um, yeah we do all of this in loud voices right out in the middle of everything because we have to have the traffic and we have to get the people through and it's going to bite us because we we are not coming across as who we profess to be to everybody i mean as i guess my line has to say we are the tip of the freaky iceberg we will test every system you can come up with but all of our other patients feel this too and that is a problem on the inpatient units, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's terrible. More questions? You were in the back. You had a question that you didn't get to ask. Clarify a term. Um, Non-binary identified. Is that basically the same as gender neutral? I've heard gender neutral before. But uh, no. Maybe. Identified is that this, when you don't identify as either gender? I don't know, that got, term got thrown out earlier and I just wrote it down. So it wasn't Jackson, you're a That's a semantically interesting question, and we will turn it over to Jackson. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm apparently an expert. Okay. Um, you wrote a book. <laughs> Lots of people have written a book. Sarah Palin wrote a book. I'm just throwing it out there. Um, 
<laughs> they so they can be um, interchangeable terms, but they can also be mutually exclusive terms. Um, if you hear somebody using a term, I would always encourage you to ask, "What do you mean when you say that?" You know, that's not an offensive thing. You just want clarification, or you can run your definition past them and say, "You know, I've heard gender neutral explained like this. Is that what you mean when you say that?" Um, because it's it's really important. And it's really validating, particularly for healthcare providers, to ask us, how do we identify? What terminology do we use for ourselves? And how do we use that terminology? Because you're going to come across patients who use the same terminology, but they use it very differently. Um, and that's going to differ in terms of socioeconomic status, in terms of race and ethnicity, and definitely in terms of age. I'll give it to you just a second. But also... Just to look at an example, non-binary versus gender neutral, I don't think you could say anybody in this panel is gender neutral, but as far as non-binary, growing up the way we grew up and knowing what we know, we're kind of all picking from a menu. So we're not, none of us is strictly on the binary, but none of us is gender neutral either. I want to address a little bit about, you know, people coming in and questions because I was taking my doctor, my dad to emergency rooms in New Jersey and we get into the room. It was a nice place, but would have people coming in and asking the same questions and acting like they had no information. This is this place is brand new, newer than here. And yet it seemed like would have people coming in and asking the same questions as though they couldn't read what was there before. And it's very frustrating when you have a man in his late 90s who's feeling discomfort and we're going around in circles and seemingly sitting there answering the same questions. I often say to my old, older patients, uh, especially when we're going in to do consultations for total shoulders, I said, remember the good old days when we acted like we knew everything and now we act like we didn't have a brain in our heads. Who are you? When were you born? Why are you here? Is that your right shoulder, your left shoulder? And they get alarmed after a while. Doesn't anybody know why I'm here? Right. And everybody asks, and we ask again and again and again and again. And for us, it's patient safety. And for them, it's crazy making. And makes them very, very nervous. As we're getting near the end, hopefully there's more questions. I did want to say we have some pins here from this is the, uh, the Dartmouth pine tree with the uh, rainbow the rainbow pine tree. So again, we'll leave them here. We'd be delighted to have you wear them. Believe me, I just the other day saw a student at Dick's house who I had this on my lapel, sore, for a sore throat, everything went, and walking out turned and said, I appreciate you wearing that. So people notice. But if you do take one, you got to walk the walk. You can't just stick it on and be a bigoted old self again. No, you, you've got to actually really try. So I'll leave that here, but hopefully there's a couple more questions. So what does it mean to wear one if somebody does ask? <coughs> when you see that flag, what does it mean? What, that, what it, in the best of cases, what does it mean? I know for me it means I, I will feel comfortable speaking with you, but I know that you're uh, LGBT friendly. For me, it means safety. Um, generally, and this is a this would be a, um, an illustration uh, of what of the choices sometimes we have to make. 
Um, we tend to vet our primary care providers very carefully. Um, if we know somebody is trans-friendly, um, very few trans-friendly PCPs have one trans patient because we tend to gravitate to the teams we know are safe. Um, I know that my team has plenty on it. Uh, when I woke up one morning after thinking I had a pinched nerve in my neck for a week because um, I had a hot line running down the outside of my arm, got up on a Saturday morning, went to put deodorant on, saw the line of blisters down the outside of my arm and said, oh, I have shingles down the C8 dermatome. What do you know? And so I said, okay, where am I going to go to get this treated? Do I go to a dock in the box in Concord where nobody knows me? But that'll be safe because I won't have a problem there. Or do I go to Dartmouth-Hitchcock and go to somebody I've never seen before, but who can see my medical history? And I love the way the medical, the problem list. Isn't that everybody's favorite? <laughs> the problem list. It doesn't say health history. It says the problem list. And it not only says if you're us, um, it says, it doesn't say transgender. It says transsexual. And it doesn't say transsexual. It's hyphenated transsexual if that doesn't make you think of rocky horror what possibly could <laughs> i think of tim curry saying it every time i read it but that's what people see and we say is the is the provider going to be okay with this am i going to get treated properly am i going to get something less what am i going to run into we have to make those decisions because it is a safety issue and it is still a safety issue maybe it shouldn't be but none of us live in should so to see that on somebody can mean safety and we look we had a request from people on television to see that cannot close oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, do you, presenter, yes, yes, yes. Chris, you're the one that's good at this, you know. <laughs> For those that don't know, the Dartmouth pine tree was the big symbol, and you see it, you know, the golf course has a pine tree. And unfortunately, I think it leveled, got leveled by lightning, and it no longer exists, but the pine tree is still the symbol of Dartmouth. Is there a question? They, I mean, we could get some to them. I'm not sure where they're from. Yeah. Where are they? I was going to say. Can they talk? <laughs> oh, we must have it muted here. Oh, no. No, it's, they're, they're, they're muted on the other end there. They are at the remote oh, sensing. The other end. They are at the remote medical it? sensing. Yeah, we hear you now. Which practice? Can you hear us now? Can you hear me? You? You're on now. Can you hear us? Yeah, we can hear you. We can yes, now. welcome. Hey, Gail. It's DJ. I thought With that was DJ. Girl, we're over at Imagine Care um, in River Mill in Lebanon, but we are a remote oh. Oh. sensing team and would like to talk about maybe using the logo as part of our website as well. Awesome. Sure. Uh, I don't think there's any copyright on it. As a matter of fact, we used it, I think, on this advertisement, didn't we, for this? Yes, we did. Yep. Yeah. And we're part of Hitchcock, um, and there's about 12 of us here. Oh. Great. Any questions? Questions? No. We're good. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Fully informed.
All right, any other questions? Yes. Okay. So I'll ask a question since this is a little um, for the trans males. Um, I've been taking injectable under Dr. Turco for about seven months, which, by the way, if you ever want me on the panel, I'd be happy to do it. Um, my voice gives me away. How long does it take for my voice to be done? And do you take lessons? That is a wonderful question. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind being out as, as trans male, but when I'm like sitting in a restaurant and they're like, here's your steak, sir, and I say thank you, and they're like, oh, sorry, ma'am, and I'm like, it's okay, really, really, it's okay. So it's like... It's a great question. And then I have some people say, really? Your voice seems kind of deep to me, um, mm -hmm. so I'm not sure, you know, just out of curiosity how long it took for you guys, if anybody wants to answer that is an excellent question. And actually, so the question was, how long will it take for my voice to drop being on testosterone? This particular individual is seven months in, and I will have you know that it took about seven to nine months, and I was on an increasing dose of testosterone. It really depends on the individual, but I swear I didn't talk for that long because of the same problem. I could be read as masculine until I talked. Yep. Biggest giveaway. So I feel your pain. Just, yeah, just out of curiosity. Yeah. Um, for me, I started out on a typical full dose, um, and it took two months, um, which surprised me because I was in the middle of um, a 15-week semester, um, and about halfway through the semester, my voice started cracking and dropping. Um, and I actually ended up dropping most of my classes because it became a problem really fast because my classmates had too many inappropriate questions. My professors had too many inappropriate questions. It wasn't here at Dartmouth, um, but it, it was a safety issue. And so even though I had started the term enrolled um, under a feminine name and pronouns by the end of the term, I couldn't pass as female anymore. So um, I fulfilled my gender identity goal, but <laughs> it created a lot of problems for me. I can't exactly tell you how long mine took because I have such a heavy accent. <laughs> so I have to go back and look at videos. No, actually, when I went and looked back, I looked back at videos about every three to four months, and I could say it took about a year for me. I don't know if it's because I'm older or because I started on a lower dose and bumped up. I have a Time will tell. Who's a transgender male? And he's a professional <coughs> singer, and it took him for his voice to fully stabilize. It took something like eighteen months. So, and, I, and I've had patients tell me it continues to deepen up, and probably until about two years. Um, but very much genetic susceptibility. How your vocal cords, mm -hmm. your small muscles, how they're going to respond to the testosterone. So that you may be on a different course than somebody else. Okay. Thank you. And I can tell you for facial hair, for me, it didn't take until this year. That was, I was going to ask that too. <laughs> <laughs> I figured that was going to be the next question, but I think it's just because I'm older and these guys got to start younger than me. I started in my, at 44, but I didn't have, like, at the age of 24, I had a full hysterectomy. I was not taking any female hormones at all. I refuse that. So I had no hormones in me until I met Dr. Turkle 20 some odd years. Well, I do have an older brother that still can't 
do a whole full beard. So Dr. Turner told me it could be your genetics. My birds are coming in, but that's about it. Okay. A any other? Well, listen, we really appreciate everybody coming and, and uh, over in Lebanon. We appreciate you joining in, too. I want to particularly thank the panelists, but especially Nikki, because I'm, this is the first time Nikki has traveled all the way up from Manchester, New Hampshire. We very much appreciate your taking part. So thank you. Thank you.